Recording live in the Lucky Number 7 Lounge in the basement of Dine Drink Travel World Headquarters, this is Dine Drink Vegas, the podcast. By and for everybody stuck at home wishing they were in the land of neon lights and bad decisions. My name is John. I'm your host. I'm also known as the baller on a budget. And in this episode, it is a travel fight. Vegas versus Dublin. We're also going to update you on the news. And we have not one, not two, but three drinks of the day. But before we get to any of those items, it's time to bring in the founder of Dine Drink Travel himself. The high roller of the high plains, the king of comps, the leader in the luxury lounge, the man who is always waiting on some shenanigans to break out especially when he's in an irish pub it's bill top of the afternoon to you bill hey john how are you today i'm doing great so the so the title of this episode is vegas versus dublin and we're going to jump into our drink of the day and then we're going to explain the irish theme afterward but but we're going to have a little shootout of, of an irish whiskey flight so we're drinking well why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners what we're drinking so um we're trying three different Irish whiskeys. One of the downsides of the trip to Ireland I just took is that pours of whiskey are 35.5 milliliters, so r- roughly an ounce. But at that point, John and I can have more than one, so we're trying to flight. We're trying three different one-ounce shots, so between them, it's one good double. And the first one is going to be Bushmills, which is one that you can find pretty conveniently in the U.S., um, it's not as common as Jameson, which we'll try second, but you still, you can find it in most decent liquor stores. And I had it at two or three different pubs. Okay. And so, and, and with both of the first two, with Bushmills and Jameson, we're drinking the base version. Correct. So we're in the, I thought we were in the Glen Corain for Bushmills. Oh yeah, we yeah. were. I'm just bad at stuff. Uh, Give me a second. So there are some more aged or complex versions of Bushmills. So this is this is the standard bottling. Bushmills is a very inexpensive Irish whiskey. Uh, it is not uh, all malt, I don't believe. So it's a mixture of malt, whiskey, and spirits. I won't do the whole tasting notes, but there's you know the 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 aroma is very simple, very honeysuckle kind of a deal. It's fine, right? Like I like it, and I certainly like it relative to price. I can already tell you that I like the next two that we're going to have more. Um, I'm thinking, though, that when I had this in Ireland this week, it must have been the second or fifth or 473rd drink of the day, whatever it was. And that probably made me like it more than I'm liking it right now. Well, there's also the possibility that they may make a different version for the export market than they do for domestic. So there is a chance they're getting a more full-bodied version. This is a... Let me let me put it this way: There is nothing wrong with Bushmills, um, but it it is it, the polite way to say it is the most approachable quality whiskey on the market. In that there's no offensive flavors; it's it doesn't have a lot of strong flavors. It's easy to sip on. I would not mix this with anything because whatever you mix it with, that flavor is just going to walk all over it. It's very subtle. It's very sippable. It's definitely shootable if that's your thing. We tend to be sippers, not shooters. Um, I do wish that I had put put this on the rocks instead of neat, because I think I would enjoy this if it was chilled down just a little bit. Yeah, it's just I think at that point you're muting what little flavor it has. Yeah, but um, okay, that's yeah. fair. But no, it's it's a nice whiskey. If anybody offers it to you because it's the drink special of the day, certainly if that happens to be the well whiskey, that's yeah, great. Like it's. It's it's fine. I, I think if you're if you're a 
If you're a vodka drinker and you want to ease your way into whiskey, I would rather go into Bushmills than something like some of the Canadian whiskeys like Crown Royal. I think this is better than those. I prefer sure. its character to that. Even if you're a bourbon or, or Canadian drinker who wants to start getting familiar with the flavors of malt, because malt-based whiskeys are very different than corn-based whiskeys. And there, there is malt barley in American bourbon and other whiskeys, but one that 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 malted grain is malted barley is the main uh, grain has a different flavor to it. Uh, so if you're if you're a little timid of the palate, it's a good starter whiskey. Otherwise, yeah, it, it it's fine. It's nothing very remarkable. So let's move on to number two, which is Jameson. This is if you have ever been in any bar or any liquor store in the U.S., I promise you have seen this green bottle of Jameson. And one of the things that I noticed, and I was probably in, there's no way I wasn't in at least like eight or 10 pubs. It may have been closer to a dozen over the course of my trip. Um, and not because I was I was pub crawling, but because that's how people eat a lot of times. That's how you socialize. That's how you do a whole lot of things. They had a bottle of Jameson in every bar. It was usually located somewhere super close to the bartender. I saw lots and lots of both Irish folks as well as tourists ordering it. So, and the reason I say all that is people say that if you go to Australia, you can't get Fosters, right? And other things like that. Jameson is an Irish whiskey that Irish people commonly buy in Irish bars. So it's, it's an actual real deal thing. Yeah. And I, and, and what do you think about the flavors and aroma of this? So hold on, let me pull this out. Having just had at least some of my Bushmills. So I prefer the flavor or the smell, rather, of this. Let me take a sip. Ooh, whiskey. So, to me, it's more pleasant. I'm trying to come up in. You're going to embarrass me because you know whiskey words better than I do. But it's almost like there's a caramel or something underneath it. Yeah, so there's a little more There's a little more character to this. Uh, I don't suspect it gets much longer in the barrel. So I think that's probably done artificially more than by barrel aging. I, I kind of wish that we had Bush black, the black label Bush mills. Cause I think they're actually pretty comparable. I would make the analogy here. Bush mills to me is, is a lot like Jim beam. Jim beam is, is a very mild tasting bourbon. It kind of gets looked down upon. It's not as popular, but it's it's. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not it, no, and like it, when that's what they're bringing me right. at the low end casino that I'm gambling at in Vegas. That Jim Beam is phenomenal. It, it's perfectly well made. There's just not a lot of there there. Yeah, it, so, it's inoffensive, but it's mild. Jameson to me is is like uh, Jack Daniels. If you're used to one, the other seems way more complex and flavorful. It's wildly popular. You do pay for the marketing marketing a little bit because they do advertise aggressively. It's a well-known brand. And again, it's well-crafted. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, you and I have teased. It's not, I. you never see me ordering Jack Daniels or at least not old number seven. Right. It's not that I dislike it. It's at that price point. There are many other things I prefer. Which is right? fair. Yeah, no, but it's um, like, I actively like Jameson. I, I yeah, prefer the Jameson to the Bushmills. Um, one of the things I should let our listeners know is that, as with so many whiskeys, there are various labels and bottlings. I had some of the various upmarket Jamesons when I was in Ireland this week. They're even better. Those can be pretty phenomenal, sometimes at a pretty small price premium from yeah. the base Jamesons. And I will say the same thing's true about Bushmills. Like Bushmills White Label it is just like that Jim Beam White, but if you jump up in the Jim Beam profile and you go to the uh, Devil's Cut or the Black Label or the, you know, 
Uh, same thing that, that we're drinking the base version of these two particular spirits. There are better versions of both of these recipes. You, you can get better bottlings and neither one is very expensive, which is nice. No, it is nice. So let's go to a bottle, which is significantly and listeners. We haven't slammed all of those shots. I'm sure it'll happen by the end of this episode. Yeah. We're sipping slow. Yeah. We're sipping slow because we want to be able to tell you what each tastes like. Let's move to the red breast 12, which is an aged product. Um, and I bought this in the duty free store before I came home. Yeah, this is, um, yeah, this is, this is full malt flavor. There's no neutral grain spirit blended in here. I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it taste, tastes like a full malt. I taste vanilla in there. Mm-hmm. So it's 12 years in the barrel. Now, on an American whiskey, 12 years in the barrel can border on too much. Mm-hmm. But that's because in America, we use brand new, first-time-use charred white oak. Uh, Irish and Scottish distillers will use a wide range of barrels, but normally it's their second fill. So some distilleries use uh, bourbon barrels that have already been used once, so the intensity of the aging is lower. Also, the climate in, in Ireland and Scotland is way more mild. So 12 years of aging, there's less soaking in and out of the wood. And I will say there, I mean, so like I love Weller 12, but for a bourbon, you know, made somewhere in the south of the U.S. where it's hot, in a first-time oak barrel, 12 years is the absolute outside limit of how long I want it to age, right? Like anything past that for an American bourbon made in American oak barrels, that that's that's too much. But this stuff is exceptionally smooth, and it should be because it was more expensive. I paid 58 euros for it in the duty-free store. I actually saw a bottle of Redbreast 12 a couple of days ago, I was after like the day after I got home, I was traveling to another town here in Texas, and it was seventy something. I want to say it was like seventy five, seventy eight dollars there. So it's yeah. it's not a cheap bottle, but it's also not obscenely expensive, right? Like it's right. not like you're going on on a hunt for the magical unicorn, which is Pappy Van Winkle or something. No, and and what I appreciate about this because I googled because I was sitting there going, okay, because uh, as I was saying that d- distillers in 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 the British Isles use a diff they source barrels from all over the place. Some use whiskey barrels, some use wine barrels from the continent. It turns out, and and this explains what I'm tasting, uh red breast, they do part of the aging in a bourbon barrel. So that's where you're getting that vanilla. That's from the toasted American oak. And it's more gentle than in a bourbon because the barrel's already been used and we're in a colder climate. But then they finish it off and sherry casks. So you pick up some fruitiness and some wine. So it's kind of nice. Like you get that malt expression, but then you get a hint of what we tend to love, the smoky vanilla that we love in American whiskeys. And you get a hint of almost a brandy flavor from the sherry cask. So you get a really well-rounded whiskey. Now, um, very few Irish distilleries use peat in their drying process. So there's not, there's none of that earthy medicinal smokiness that you get in a peated whiskey but there is a hint of smoke and vanilla from from the american barrel and then there's that fruitiness from the sherry barrel it really is lovely yeah one last question before we move on and talk about the irish pubs in ireland versus the irish pubs in vegas it seems to me like if you're relying on other people's barrels for your second use barrels that gives you a real risk because if um I mean, you'd essentially have to buy the barrels made from the exact same whiskey every time because let's say that you were aging for a while in Maker's Mark barrels and Maker's Mark quit selling them to you or 
runs out or there's a rickhouse fire or whatever, and you've got to use somebody else's barrel, so maybe you use Buffalo Trace barrels, that's going to change the, the complexion of your product, right? Yes, it can. And so I want to look up... Um... I was hoping your question would take longer because I'm actually... Uh, I mean, I'm wordy. I can use more more words if that's going to help No, you. because what I wanted to look up is is that uh, Redbreast is owned by a company called uh, Bernard Ricard. That, and, that does not sound Irish. That sounds kind of French. And let's get into the brands that they own because this gets into your question. And they always age check on these things. All right, let's do that. Um and I want to see their brands because I can pretty well tell you where they're where they're doing this. And by the way, they also own Jameson, uh, and they own a number of Scotch producers. So the way that they're doing this is they control their sourcing because they own wineries and distilleries. Okay. Uh, so looking through there, I'm trying to see. Yeah, they own Rabbit Hole, which is an American bourbon producer. I've got some in my closet. Smooth Rambler. Now, all of those, I think, are contract made by SPG out of uh, out of Indiana. Uh, J.P. Weiser. So they own several bourbon brands. So they're going to control their barrel sourcing from those. By the way, they also own some Canadian brands. So they're going to also be able to control the aging because uh, Canadian distillers do the exact same thing. They buy used barrels from bourbon producers. And uh, it's very rare to have a Canadian whiskey in a brand new barrel. They don't tend to do that. So that is part of that is global, uh, global conglomerates. Sometimes for serious alcohol fans, we wring our hands about that because we love to think that our favorite spirit whiskey brandy whatever you're into tequila gin that it, it's made by some artisanal little mom and pop shop that, yeah, that that's not a that, thing. that's all they do and there still are some boutique distillers out there and it's romantic to think about that the upside of the conglomerates is Redbreast absolutely can consistently source their barrels right that that's not an issue for them so when you have these conglomerates it takes some of the charm and romanticism out out of the spirit trade but in exchange you get consistency and you get easy access to international markets so you know so i'm going to say that on my world whiskey rankings i still prefer an american bourbon and particularly a wheated bourbon because that I, I enjoy just the hint of sweetness without being an actual sweet drink, right? Like I don't want right. to drink a lot of sugar or really any. But after that, I like Irishes. And after the Irishes, probably the occasional Canadian product, if I must. And then somewhere several levels below the basement is scotch. But that's just because I don't like the flavor of peat at all. So I, wanna, I love how smooth and soft this is. I want to push back on you because several years ago when you were first exploring whiskeys, I bought you a bottle of Glenmorangie from Scotland. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you did not enjoy it. Correct. I but, believe you eventually drank that bottle. Yeah, but they're not peated either. And I would argue that the flavor profile of Redbreast 12 is pretty similar to Glenmardin G10. And so there are scotches that are not peated. They don't have that medicinal earthy smoke. They may have barrel smoke, but they're not going to have that, that funk that, that either you love or you hate. I happen to love it. I like my, I like scotches that'll blow your head off with it. No, nope. but I would argue there are some scotches that I think you would enjoy 
Uh, most of the Jura line, I think you would also enjoy. So because they don't, they other than uh, superstition, they don't use peat either. So there are some scotches that are very similar to these Irish whiskeys. I, I think there's room in your whiskey universe for more than you think. You know, I just got my first AARP membership card in the mail today. And that makes me think that I'm officially get off my lawn territory and I'm going to go with the things I know I like. And I know I like the Irish. Also, I may be having occasion to go to Ireland quite a bit over the next four years or so. So I'm going to go on an Irish whiskey deep dive. I, I encourage you to do that and to bring back bottles with you. So I encourage uh, you to come with me sometime. I would like to do that. And by the way, we can revisit Irish whiskey. But I think what we've landed on here is Irish whiskey. Very good. Very approachable. And listeners, if you're not doing Irish, you should give it a shot. I will say to you, Bill, I, I, I want to revisit Scotch. I think we'll do a Scotch flight down the road and see if we can find Scotches that an Irish whiskey lover will love. But we'll save that for a later episode. So I wanted to ask you questions. You got to go to Ireland. I did. So the theme of the episode is Vegas versus Ireland or versus Dublin in particular. Uh, with the lens of one, we really love Vegas. We're doing a podcast about it. But two... There are a lot of places in Las Vegas that claim to be Irish pubs. We've been to a few of them. Uh, we have. I plan to go to a few more because I like an Irish pub even when I know it's fake. So we're gonna we're gonna culminate this discussion with real Irish pub versus what you've experienced in Vegas. But let's start here. So talk to us about hotel accommodations in Ireland. What did you think? So, um, I mean, it's a modern Western country. It's all fine hotels in Ireland are significantly cheaper than hotels in Vegas. And obviously you've got to care about what hotel you're at and which day of the week it is and time of year and all like sure. Like all of that is is a thing and I get it. But really nice hotels are cheaper. We stayed at what was probably the nicest hotel in Dublin that was stumbling distance from everything in the central business district. And it was still only like 400 euros a night, which was because somebody else was paying, my sister was paying for it. So cool. Um, we'll get to, so when we went to, well, whatever, we'll talk about the differences between Dublin and Cork later on. Um, but I stayed in, at the nicest hotel, second nicest hotel in Cork for less than half that price. So hotels in Dublin and Cork are just cheaper than hotels in Vegas, even for exceptionally nice hotels. Now, Part of that's because they're not trying to be like all-encompassing resorts or anything like that. But hotels are cheaper. I would encourage you to find a place which is walking distance from wherever you want to be and then walk. I would tell you to find a place which is going to be walking distance from a pub, but you can't help that, right? Like walking distance from a pub is just going to happen. If you are offended by the sight of alcohol, Ireland is is not the place for you. But then you're probably not listening to a Vegas podcast anyways. So. Yeah, you know what? Those are probably not our people. Um, but yeah, find one that's walking distance away, partially because you're going to be having some drinks and you don't ever want to drink and drive, but partially because in Ireland, much as in the island immediately to their east, they drive on the left and you don't want to be jet lagged and trying to figure that stuff out. No. Right. No. So just find a place which is convenient and run with it. I walked past dozen hotels between the two cities they all looked lovely you can get great accommodations and it's not a thing you really need to worry about because ireland is a modern developed country so let's talk about dining as well because you've got an interesting note in here um in our in our show notes so what did you what did you make of the cuisine did you do a full irish fry up for breakfast Uh, i did three and 
let me, I'll get to breakfast in a second, but let me give my summary notes on Irish food. They fry stuff at a level that would put the Texas State Fair to shame. Sweet baby Jesus. Oh, dear goodness. So uh, for my dinner on, we're recording this on Saturday. For my dinner on Monday night when we were in Cork, we went into a pub, and I'll name the pub later on because it is my favorite pub anywhere in the world right now. But what I had was a sausage. So far, so good. And it was a perfectly lovely sausage. But then they battered it, and then they fried the battered sausage. And to go with it, I had a cheese and onion pie, which was effectively some cheesy mashed potatoes that they rolled up into a ball, then they battered it, then they fried that. So are they slicing the sausage into medallions and frying those, or was it the whole sausage? No, like it, it was the whole sausage link. So Irish corn dog, because and we'll get yeah, to okay, the comparisons so, yeah. later, but like... Uh, An Irish corn dog's not a horrible yeah. comparison. It's just that this yeah. was a real sausage, so it was better. Nine Fine Irishmen has fried sausage on their menu, and we'll get to the comparisons later, but theirs are in medallions, and we'll, we'll talk about the comparisons later, but yeah, no, that's interesting to me. Okay. Well, and so, and like, and obviously, like you can get high-end cuisine... Right. Um, we went to a steakhouse once that was lovely. Um, vegan and vegetarian places are a thing. But the central core of Irish cooking is, um, okay, at least at most of the pubs I went to, not not that unfamiliar to anybody who's been to a state fair in the United States. I ate a lot of fried stuff, and I think if I'd been there two more days, I was going to die of a heart attack. It was all delicious. It was good. We my favorite restaurant in the island island was in Cork. It was a place called Jackie Lennox Chipper. I had a fried whatever kind of whitefish it was, and they get like they chopped the head off, but otherwise just fried up the whole fish. Oh right? wow! Um, my boy had a hamburger there. They offered fried chicken. Like there was, man, there is a lot of fried stuff. And we tried some of the other dishes. The other thing I'll mention about the food because you asked about the Irish fry up. Yeah, Irish breakfast is phenomenal. We were in Ireland because my boy is considering going to school in Ireland, so we're looking at a couple of different universities. Um, You can get a full Irish fry up, and I had it in two different university cafeterias and like two different restaurants. I mean, basically, you're going to have black pudding, white pudding, um, streaky bacon, back bacon, usually baked beans, usually soda bread, sometimes baked beans, sometimes mushrooms and tomatoes, um, usually some kind of potato product, right? But it's like, it's a lot, a lot of food. And I never thought I would say this because America is God's corner of the world. We are a beautiful, beautiful place. We do almost everything better than almost everybody. The one thing that the Irish just objectively do better than us is bacon. Like the bacon I had in Ireland was so much better than American huh. bacon, okay, that's because good to it know. was—I mean, it was—it huh. it was fatty, but it was—it was mostly a, a chunk of of meat, of super salty, porky goodness. And let us imagine that you had theoretically had too much whiskey the night before. Salty pork is what you need to get through the next morning. Irish bacon is just phenomenal, man. That's good to know because I'm skeptical of other countries' bacon because Canada has scarred me. That's ham, Canada. You're not fooling us. Yeah, we no, know this, ham when we see it. No, so this was not Canadian bacon. This was Thank bacon, God. right? All like right. it was real bacon. It's just it it didn't have the streaks of fat. It had a little bit of fat on the outside, which you could eat or not. But it tasted like bacon because it was it was bacon, right? right. So yeah, no, the the restaurants were great. And again, of course, don't overdo this. You can get whatever you want. But yeah, the, the as a measure of central tendency, um, fried food is, is where it's at. All right. 
So I'm going to skip our question about whiskey because actually the things we were going to talk about, I think we covered in our drink of the day section. Other than I do have some ideas the next time you go, I'm going to pass along some whiskeys to look out for, Clontarf being one of them. Okay. Uh, there's some other Irish whiskeys out there, but I think you you know, you know got the three that are very accessible to most Americans. Most American liquor, liquor stores will have these three, and you're telling us that these are also things you find over there, so we're good. Um, any pitfalls? So we know, you know, we've done what to do and not to do in Vegas. How about in Ireland? Anything that the savvy tourist needs to know before they get off the plane? So I like to pay for stuff in cash. Um, a lot of places in Ireland would prefer to have electronic payment, but happy to take your cash, whatever. Um, the first thing I would say, and this is true anywhere you're traveling, don't, there's going to be an ATM somewhere close by. Don't pay the exchange rates at the um, the the currency exchange at the airport. Like it's not good. When you do find an ATM, find an ATM that's attached to an actual bank. Don't find an ATM which just says cash machine because those are going to charge you pretty bad exchange rates. But if you go to an ATM of the Bank of Ireland or whatever established bank then the odds are excellent that your bank is going to charge you um, just market rates, so you're going to save a whole, whole lot of money. And for me, when I was overseas, and let's face it, going through a lot of pubs, it was a convenient budgeting tool to have cash to pay for stuff. And the prices for so much of what I had were so dang low that I could, right? Like I couldn't pay cash for a hotel. At least I assume I couldn't have. It would have involved a large brick, right? But for all the meals, for the bus fares, for the cab fares, all that, cash is an absolutely viable option. Okay. And I am, whatever, just wait, go to a bank ATM as soon as you get there. If you are going to exchange some other currency, just do like 100 euros so you can catch the cab and it's 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 fine. Other than that, though, there the other thing I would say is make sure that you can walk places. Um, there, there, there really aren't many tourist pitfalls. Like there wasn't anything I was scared of. At one point, my 18 year old went on walkabout and went into a pub and it was fine. And I wasn't worried about how that was going to work out. No, it's, it was a safer and more comfortable place to me than, um, than a vacation in Vegas or something like that. And I'm looking at the time we're going to have to boogie on some Mm -hmm. of these, but I do want to get there. So, um, you hit two towns because you were there with your with your with your child looking at colleges. So Dublin and Cork, real quick. Well, if if somebody wants to visit Ireland and they they only have time to do one of those towns, uh, what do you think? So both can feature an excellent pub crawl. Cork is cheaper. I also think Cork is prettier and Cork is way more laid back. Now Dublin is sometimes easier to get to. Um, the there's a huge bar district right in central Dublin, and Dublin is the center of mass for the country, right? So if you're going to make one trip to the country ever, I would probably go to Dublin because it's the center of the country. Just know that the pub experience there in the middle of town can get changed because of the hordes of marauding tourists. Like we saw some people who had to have been British wearing giant puffy leprechaun hats walking up and down bars and having way too much fun. That sort of stuff fundamentally doesn't happen in Cork. Dublin is a more international city. Cork is a much more Irish city. They are both lovely. My preference would be to go to Dublin, find a quiet pub on a weeknight, and that same quiet pub that becomes much louder with bands on a weekday. Or okay. a weekend, rather. By the way, did you did you try any of the local beers? I know I was encouraging you to actually try. Did you try a cask engine ale where they actually have to pull... So I had a couple of sips of somebody else's Guinness, 
Turns out I still just, I, I don't like stout, right? Like I just, okay. I don't. Um, my I mean, you're wrong, but we're still friends. It's it's cool. Uh, you know what? You're drinking my whiskey. So therefore I'm, I'm right enough until you finish that. Oh, you're correct. Class. Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah okay, I, I no, hear fair. you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, no um, I, I retract my comment. My sister tried Beamish, which is a stout made in cork. She said that she couldn't distinguish it um, from from Guinness. But I would say that Beamish and Guinness are very similar. Murphy's is my favorite of the three. Okay, fair. And I didn't try that. I did have a harp lager. It was delightful. But I wanted to try whiskey. So whiskey is most of what I had. Okay, that's fair enough. So let's get to the big question. Real Irish pub versus Vegas. And let's let's narrow our com- There's a lot, but we re-raw and nine fine Irishmen are the ones that I think we've we've both gravitated towards. Uh re-raw being in Mandalay Bay, nine fine Irishmen being in New York, New York. What do you think? The real thing versus the uh hollow deck in Vegas? So um I want to break this down into individual things because the whole overall experience is is a very different thing. But there are parts that are similar. So I'll start with the decor. And the decor at both of those places, yeah, it works, right? Like they look like Irish pubs. I know in the case of Reraw, I think that's because they took the bar out of a pub. Uh, quite somewhere. literally, yeah. yes. Like so, all the furniture and yeah, they 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 carted that over. Yeah, so both of those places look like Irish pubs, with the exception of in the case of Nine Fine Irishman, you're going to look out and you're going to see the casino floor on the New York, New York, and that sort of stuff's not going to happen. Oh, yeah. Um, but no, they both absolutely look like Irish pubs. Like, the feel is correct. Okay. How about uh, how about food? So, that's one of the things which surprised me. Um, it turns out that bar food is bar food, and the menus that the Irish pubs in Vegas have are absolutely authentic. Now, the the at Vegas price, the Vegas prices are inflated, but um, it turns out people at Irish pubs order chicken wings and hamburgers and such, or fried balls of mashed potatoes, or fried Irish sausages, or whatever shepherd's but, pie. And yeah, I will say, um, I, I've not, I haven't had your experience. I haven't been to Ireland. Between the two in Vegas that that we've really drilled down on, I think the food. At Re-Rob beats the food at Nine Fine Irishmen. Not that Nine Fine Irishmen is bad at all. I wouldn't tell people not to go there. Between the two, I prefer Re-Rob. They're both great. Yeah, no, they are both great. But the food, awfully, awfully similar, just allowing for the fact that it's going to cost more in Vegas, but that's because stuff in um, Vegas does cost more. And how about beverages? Because, you know, that's a thing we do on this podcast. Uh, you, you drink, John? I'm actually kind of offended. I, I didn't know that was a thing you did. Um, so every Irish pub I went into had a virtually infinite selection of whiskeys, right? Like there were a lot. Like there were a lot, a lot of whiskeys. Like I'm shocked that the bartenders generally had a pretty good knowledge of their whiskeys because there were a lot, a lot. But there would be a whole lot of Irish whiskeys, a fair number of scotches, usually six to eight American bourbons, three bottles of vodka, two tequilas, like the the center of gravity was Irish whiskeys. They obviously all had beers, but oddly, not that many. Most of the pubs I remember seeing a, a pool that would have five or six beers. And I'm sure, on. you know, Carlsberg, Harp, and Guinness were everywhere. They were. Also, um, with love to my brother-in-law, who I, I hope is looking down from heaven and listening to this, they had Coors Light freaking everywhere. 
That kind of blows my mind. Yeah, like yeah. there are better choices. Y'all don't go to Vegas and get Coors Light. Just don't do it. I'm just going to say of all the things our country has exported, and I love my nation. But Coors Light? World, I am sorry about light beer. Yeah, no, we, we apologize on behalf of 330 million Americans. The the In terms of drink service, though, the thing which was most different, an Irish whiskey pour Every place. It, it it was so consistent, it had to have been regulated by law. Like, I don't know that it was regulated by law, but it was so consistent, I can't imagine any other a- answer. A pour of whiskey is 35.5 milliliters, which is just about an ounce. Um, normally, a pour in the United States is going to be an ounce and a half. Now, some places it's an ounce. Some places it's two ounces. But the pours of whiskey were decidedly shorter than the pours of whiskey in the United States, although... I mean, the price, okay, the prices weren't cheap, cheap, but the prices struck me as fairly reasonable. I'd, I'd have to go back and do the math to see on what's a better value per unit. By the way, since this is a Vegas podcast, I will take this opportunity. You were talking about different pour sizes. Sometimes visitors to Vegas get upset because if you order your whiskey on the rocks, you'll see a rocks upcharge. What? But let me explain why you're not paying for the ice in most Vegas bars. If you order a shot or a neat pour, it is 1.5 ounces. If you order a rocks pour, it is two or two and a half ounces, depending on the bar, usually two. The reason you're upcharged is you're getting more whiskey. They're not charging you for the ice. You're getting a bigger pour. I think that's worth. So I know we're talking about Ireland, but this is a Vegas podcast. So before anybody gets mad, they charged me for ice. There's a rocks charge. No, you're paying because when you order on the rocks in Vegas, at least you get a bigger pour. That is really, really good to know. And I had no idea. Um, So they were delighted to serve it neater on the rocks. That was always a question. And there wasn't a strong preference one way or the other, right? Well, like assume, presumably because they're measuring it either way, right? Yeah, no, they're yeah. measuring it either way, but it wasn't like there wasn't any whiskey snobbery about how you should do it. They were delighted to serve it either way. As it should be. I can't stand the gatekeepers in whiskey. If you like your whiskey chilled, chill it. If you like it on the rocks, drink it on the rocks. There's it. It's going in your mouth. Quit letting like, I know what I like, but I'm not going to tell the person drinking next to me how to drink their whiskey. It's your whiskey. Absolutely. So can I talk for just a second about what I saw as the biggest difference between Irish pubs yes, and Ireland? Yes, please do. Cause I think that's important. So to me, the biggest difference between Irish pubs in Ireland versus Irish pubs in Vegas was the fellow patrons. Um, in Ireland, a pub is a place that you go to relax and hang out. Like several of them literally had like a stack of board games, right? Like that wasn't some affectation for tourists. Like you could just play checkers or whatever. So like an American coffee shop. Uh, very much okay. like an American coffee shop and a place that you might linger. Um, it was a place you would have dinner. Like there was, okay, so 18 is drinking age there, but there was no awkwardness about having kids there. Um, it was... The patron set was different, even when we were in college bars, right? Like the patron set was different. There was, I will talk on on the next point about one guy who had been overserved, but still there weren't there were there weren't as many angry drunk people in Ireland as I would sometimes see at the bars in Vegas. And the fellow patrons were way chattier. Y'all and John will understand why this is funny. I felt like talking to strangers in Irish pubs, and I don't talk to strangers. No, you do not. No, because no. stranger danger. Like, I got that lesson in 1979, and I haven't gotten over it since then. 
but the patrons are so much more pleasant and relaxed. Um, if you walk up and start a conversation with somebody at a pub in in Vegas, like most of the time, that's going to be super weird. And that's mm. it's no. It, yeah, no. I like it. It's fine. Um, yeah, whatever. Like people would go table to table just chatting at a couple of the pubs I went that, to. That Ireland. sounds it was, lovely. It was a very different thing. I will say that, listeners, and we don't generally put our faces out there, and if you saw us, you would know why, but... No, we have faces made for radio. When we go to Vegas, if you ever want to meet up with us somewhere, I would encourage you when you meet us uh, and you sit at the bar with us, sit on my side because I'll talk to you. Bill will be awkward and weird uh, because it's what Bill does, and eventually we'll we'll draw him into the conversation because he's a lovely man who has a lot to say, but if you want to chat with us in Vegas, I'm probably the one that's going to engage in that conversation. Yeah, no, that that is absolutely true. I may go play a hand of blackjack. Or yeah, something. but I love talking to strangers. It's like I'll talk to the person next to me on the airplane, and that's the worst place to talk to people. The only place I will not talk to you if I'm at a urinal. I am not trying to make a friend. Yeah, no, yeah, there, no. there are rules. Yes. I'm glad that even you have that boundary. Yeah, I am not that extroverted, but no. I do love talking to strangers in bars. So uh, you've got several stories listed here. We've only got time for one. We can we can come back in future episodes because we'll we'll gnaw on this bone for a while. You want to give us one parting short story, and then we're going to move on to Vegas news because we have people that listen to us for Vegas. Uh, and and we will get to that in a second. But no, I'm going to talk about the best pub in Ireland for a second. There are some sub stories, and you know what? We've got two minutes here. The best pub in Ireland is a place in Cork on Washington Street called Alibi. I mean, it's just this lovely, friendly, cozy space. And at Alibi, we met a guy named Danny. Danny is, I don't know, 35, 40 years old. He'd been drinking for a while, and he was chatty. At some point, my sister goes up to the bar. He felt like chatting with her, and it wasn't inappropriate or weird. He was just chatting. Then he came over the table to chat with us. His friends tried to pull him off of, of, of our table but just this, this like this, this archetype of the affable drunk. Like Danny was a lot of fun, and Alibi was an amazing bar. Um, they had that's where we got our fried sausages and our cheese and onion pie and all that. They had the board games, and again, and I can't stress this enough. I talked to strangers, and our bill at the end of the night was was pleasantly low. Like three of us eating and drinking for a while. I still don't think we got to 50 euros. So if you wow. go to Ireland, go to Cork, um, and 50 euros would be what, $54, something like yeah, that? Yeah, somewhere, somewhere 54, if, 60, somewhere in that range. No, it, but, yeah, not it's not 60. Um, it's whatever. Um, go to Cork, go to Washington Street, go to a place called Alibi, because it was delightful. And to me, that is the heart of what the Irish pub experience is. By the way, curiosity got the best of me. And at today's rate... $54.18 American, so you were spot on. Yeah, bill, no, it, it turns out I've done this this week. Yeah, it, yeah. It, well, and when it comes to international trade and mathing, you tend to beat me at those things anyway, so you were spot on, sir. All right, let's jump into some Vegas news. Our first three stories come from Scott at Vital Vegas. By the way, if you don't follow him on social media, you absolutely should at Vital Vegas on Twitter. His podcast is also good, but don't quit listening to ours and we publish more often. All right. Story number one, Scott says that the Rio is cutting three director level executives due to over overstaffing. But as it turns out, all three are holdovers from Caesar. Sounds like the new ownership wants to exercise some demons of the past. Uh, we talked about this a couple episodes. Are you still not very excited about Rio until there's better access to the strip? 
Yeah, I mean, like, the Rio's fine. I just, part of the reason I go to Vegas is so I can go places besides just the one hotel, and I want to do it on foot, and there's not a lot of places you can get to on foot from the Rio. Okay, fair. Uh, so another story from Vital Vegas. Uh, he also reports that there are new signs all along the Fremont Street experience reminding visitors that the street performers do not work for the experience, nor can they demand payment because there's been a lot of complaints. Not only the people pose with somebody that's performing and then they're they're told they have to pay an exorbitant fee instead of a relatively minor uh, uh, tip. Some of these performers have apparently allegedly been photobombing tourists who weren't trying to get the showgirls or the fake cops or whoever, the nun and pasties in the picture, but they inserted themselves into the picture and then acted like they were entitled to something. So you can now just point at the sign and walk away. Yeah, I would have walked away anyway. Now, I would say that if you ask to pose for a photo with um, somebody, I would ask what an appropriate tip is before you yes. do that sort of thing. Absolutely. Say, hey, I'd love a picture with you. What? What's a reasonable tip? And if you don't like their number, counter. And if y'all can't agree, walk away. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I would say if you're going to stop and enjoy the musical performance for a while, then sure, throw throw five bucks in the guitar case. But yeah, don't let somebody extort you. Just keep walking. Yeah, and, and especially the, the S&M girls that like to just randomly whip dudes walking down the street like, no, nah, sweetie, I'm not tipping you after you hit me with a whip. Like, nah, well, that, mm, yeah, you're no. not getting my money that That's way. That's not I'm a not, thing. I'm not down like that. Uh, some people are good for you, but yeah, not me. No. Okay, and one more from Vital Vegas. So uh, Mandalay Bay is apparently going to either refurbish or build a brand new venue uh, to bring in a Bob Marley themed, I don't know if it's going to be a tribute show or if it's going to be one of these hologram shows where we get virtual Bob and recordings of Bob, or if we get a Bob sound alike. But we're going to get a Bob Marley show at Mandalay Bay. So, Bill, are you ready to get your reggae on, or is this not a show that's in your wheelhouse? You know, not in my wheelhouse. If that's where the group is going, cool, happy to do it. Um, it, it is probably not where I go for my my, my first stop. Yeah, I think I really do like Bob Marley, Bob Marley's music. I'm not a huge fan. I can't say I know the catalog. Definitely all the big hits. Uh, anything on that greatest hits album, I'm, like many children of the 90s, that was in rotation in my CD changer. Uh, I think I'm pretty stoked about that. I think I go, speaking of Bob Marley and all things Bob Marley related, <laughs> uh, multiple sources have reported that Smoke and Mirrors, the first now, I put an asterisk there, and I'll explain why. The first uh, marijuana consumption lounge uh, is opening. It's, it's, uh, a J- it's, they say it's on the Strip. It's not. It's about a half mile from the Strip. It's opened its doors. I doubt this really excites either one of us. However, it does raise the question, is there a chance with these lounges popping up, maybe you know the Strip will smell less like Willie Nelson's tour bus because people have a place to go? I certainly hope so. Like I don't, I don't like walking through casinos or just up and down the street and being forced to walk through the thick walls of the marijuana smoke. The other thing, it makes no sense. So I actually understand the choice the state of Nevada made to legalize weed. Cool, right? Like, and that makes sense. But it makes no sense to legalize weed and not have some sort of smoking lounge where people can enjoy the product. So that's not a place. I'm going to go. My employment's not going to permit that sort of thing. However, um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me that that's a thing they would do. And I would love to not get so much of the secondhand smoke. Yeah, although a lot of the 
you know, pot you smell on the strip or especially on Fremont Street isn't actually pot because you have the fake dispensary selling basically grandma's oregano. Whatever. I don't want to smell yeah. it. Yeah, I, I agree. So I think this is a good deal. Not only it's not only a great deal for people who wish to consume because you and I tend to be a little bit libertarian on this. You whether or not we're consuming, we're cool that other people are. Yeah, whatever. I do like the idea of I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to walk away smelling like Snoop Dogg security guy all night long. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's kind of nice. Uh, the um, the uh, reporter journal or whatever they're calling their fish wrap out there in Vegas has said that the last vestiges of McCarran Airport signs are gone and the, and the conversion to the Harry Reid Airport is complete. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's going to be another five years before I quit calling it McCarran, not because I don't respect um, Senator or Majority Leader, former Majority Leader Reid. I, I do. I just, whatever, it was McCarran for the first decade, decade and a half that I flew to Vegas. Um, and, you know, usually I'm, I'm kind of pumped up on an adrenaline high when I get to McCarran Airport. Pardon me. To See, I just did it, right? Accidentally. Right. Yeah, when I get to Harry Reid Airport and I'm exhausted when I get to it on the way back. So, you know what? Informally, it's, it's going to take me a few more years before I linguistically make that change. Yeah. And I, I will say, like, I'm not like, look, we live in Texas. Right. We, we don't get political on this podcast, but we are, we are, we are Texans through and through. So you could probably guess which way we lean. Uh, but there's been a lot of pushback on social media from people who didn't like uh, former majority leader, Senator Reed. Uh, you know, say what you will about political party and political affiliation. A lot of people in the state of Nevada feel like he advocated for their state. They wanted to honor the man with an airport. I will call it Harry Reid Airport and, and keep my opinions to myself. No, Although, I'm not going to do yeah. th- that's I'm not making a political statement. No, know, that's just oh, a, like I'm not. used to having right. done it one way. For a decade, decade and a half. and I'm, No, yours isn't political. It's yeah. old man disease. We don't like change and get off our lawn. Yeah, absolutely. I will say the social media pushback against the name change from people who don't live in the state of Nevada kind of blew my mind. Like, uh, the heck if Why I get to tell people in Nevada care? what they get to do. Yeah. Also, Harry Reid believed that UFOs were real. So there's that just for fun. Huh, uh, one story, all you have is a link uh, because I did this while I was in line at the pharmacy and I am mad at my pharmacy. Uh, H-E-B, you know what you did and I'm coming for you. All right. So uh, since we're done with this podcast, I'm getting back on to have my Twitter war with, with that pharmacy. Anyway, uh, eight, uh, several properties along 6th Street uh, and Fremont close to Las Vegas Boulevard have now changed hands to a new developer, uh, to Siegel enterprises. That includes the block where you see things like, uh, I think the Griffin bar is part of this. I know we all scream is a part of this. So, um, there are no immediate plans to change there, but having already seen some other properties down there change hands last year, last year, it feels like in that, uh, basically where that is listeners, if you've never been, we're talking about where you make the transition from the Fremont street experience to Fremont East, essentially across the street from El Cortez. That's where we're talking about. Uh, these properties are a block up from that, but still out of the Fremont street experience. The ones that sold back in October were directly across closer down to El Cortez. It feels like there's some, there's another shoe to drop here. I think we're about to see a sea change in Fremont East. What do you think, Bill? So I, I prefer the strip and I will always prefer the strip, but I increasingly like the Fremont street area cause it's just such a different experience 
and you can't really be a Vegas aficionado if you don't know both of the spaces. I'm excited to see more development downtown. I, I am too, and I really like these areas. I'm, I'm working on a run sheet right now because I'm going to flip some stories around. Uh, but while we're talking about downtown, it was announced that uh, Spandex Nation will be resuming uh, performances on the Fremont Street experience. All right, wait, 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 wait. So is Spandex Nation just like all those inappropriately dressed grandmas? Like what in the name of bacon? Like delicious, delicious Irish bacon. What is Spandex Nation? I'm so glad you asked. So when you go to the Fremont Street experience and occasionally the Carnival Court Bar over by the Link and Flamingo in that area, Spandex Nation is one of the big 80s rock and occasionally early 90s rock cover bands and is exactly what you think. They, they, they do the big poofy hair and the spandex outfits and big old guitar solos. They're often compared with another band that frequently plays down there, which is Alter Ego. So essentially, these are the bands, because let's be honest, Generation X, we are now the generation that has the discernible discretionary income. We're what everything is is aimed at. There's a reason you hear Pearl Jam at the grocery store now, right? So uh, these are the bands that are playing the songs for extremely young boomers, but really for Gen Xers uh, to keep us partying out there on the Fremont Street experience. Uh, I've seen this band several times live just out on the, on the experience. Most of you, if you've been, you probably have, you just didn't pay attention to who you were listening to. I think this is great news. They're a lot of fun. Their, their, their guitar players are very good. The singer's pretty darn good. They do a wide range of, of eighties music. Uh, yeah, they're a lot of fun. You got to check them out. So they're going to be back on the Fremont street experience in April. They've been off there for a while. I'm not sure why. Uh, but they're coming back. And for a lot of us who love Fremont Street, this is big news. That is fantastic. Cool. Yeah. If you're over 45 and you like Fremont Street, you want to hear these guys play. Outstanding. What else we have, John? Okay. So we're going to move on to some more tangible news. Uh, so here's one for you from marketing point of view. Uh, according to at Vegas on Twitter, they're finally getting rid of that stupid Dorito wrapper around the Luxor pyramid. So it's not a giant four sided Dorito. Yeah. I guess on my list of weird stuff in Vegas, that was just so far down the list that yeah, it never stood out to me. Yeah. I mean, maybe if you are getting all that Frito-Lay money to turn your property into a giant Dorito, quit raising the friggin' resort fees. Didn't Frito-Lay PepsiCo pay for that? Right, yeah, anyway. no, that was dumb. Okay, so uh, some serious news here. USLakes.info says Lake Mead is up to 1,076 feet. That's higher than it ever was last year. Uh, and reading all, around a few other websites, National Weather Service and other places, they're crediting that to the atmospheric rivers that have come through the West Coast over the winter, dumping a whole lot of rainwater into the valley. And, and this is a big deal, the reason Lake Mead started to rebound last year was they had higher than average snowfall on the western slope. They don't expect higher than average this year, but they are expecting to hit at least average. National Weather Service uh, says that they're getting there, and uh, April 1st is that cutoff date. So there's a good chance that lake levels continue to rise at least until early summer because there's wet conditions in Southern California, so that decreases demand. And we've had more water pulling, uh, pouring in to the river basin. So it looks like well, the Colorado River is going to, and, and Lake Mead are going to survive a few more years. Yeah. So, and that's huge for Vegas because that is absolutely their lifeline. And they've still got a huge need to conserve water, but that's great. I will say 
one of the things which stood out to me when we were on our trip to Ireland, absolutely no need to conserve water. I cannot tell you how it's like they, they, they have extra knock yourself out. Y'all, when you're in Vegas, please be considerate because th- whatever, what the, that lake, that water is the absolutely vital lifeline of the town. And they've got a respite and fantastic. And that buys Vegas a few extra years, but it's still not forever. Okay, and then the last story, and there's really no news to report other than the Athletic says that the A's are looking to extend their current lease in Oakland, although fans seem to not be too happy about that. So, Bill, do you have anything to add to that? I know we've beaten this story like a dead horse. Well, that's because it's it's one of the central stories in Vegas, and I guess the only thing I would say, I am shocked at how incompetent John Fisher and his ownership group are, right? This is just absolutely nuts that there's not really a plan. Yeah, it's almost like Jerry Jones is a silent partner in all of this. Okay, Ah. so let's move on. So we both have trips coming up. We're going to have to record one more time. The next time you hear a podcast, I will be in Vegas. We will record that before I leave. You'll be in Vegas a day after I arrive. I don't know that our paths will cross necessarily. Because your friends won't let you go to a steakhouse. They're they're not wanting to do steak, but uh, we have a very different trip plan. So I'm staying at the link. Uh, so we're going to have some reports on some link related things. There may be a chance that I drag my friends to Flavortown because I've never been to one of Guy Fieri's restaurants. And sooner or later, you got to dance with the devil. By the way, why do we hate the man? Because he's got frosted tips, right? I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Right. A lot of people hate the guy. Eh, whatever. Uh, but that's our trip is definitely going to be uh, middle-aged men pretending we're 20 again. How about yours? I don't understand how you've got a group of, of dudes going to Vegas and they won't go eat at a steakhouse. So I'm going with a couple of friends of mine. I am spending a couple of nights at the Flamingo because I've never been there because it's free while I'm there. I am certain I go to eat at Bugsy and Meyer because I owe that restaurant a second trip. I also have been itching to check out the Fountain Blue. So I'm going to spend one night there, and I suspect we wind up doing a whole episode of this podcast just on the Fountain Blue, and I don't know that I don't go to a different steakhouse every night because God bless Vegas steakhouses. Okay, well, I think that's a good plan, and I'm at Link, you're at Flamingo. I'm sure our paths will cross. Maybe we'll go buffet together for breakfast one morning anyway thank you so much for listening we appreciate your time there's a lot of podcasts out there but you took the time to listen to ours and if you like what we're doing bill where can they find us you can find us at dine drink travel on instagram on twitter you can also find us on threads and obviously on facebook you can also find us on youtube at dine drink travel or at dine drink vegas and you can find me at dine drink john on twitter i'm happy to talk to you even though bill's an introvert we're so glad you took the time to listen to us if you enjoy what we're doing please share with a vegas loving friend and until next time happy travels